Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show I talk to acclaimed filmmaker Alan Gilson about his new film The Days of Trees where he documents the troubled life of one of his closest friends. How to Have Sex is the impressive first feature of Molly Manning Walker and she talks to me about post-GCSE holidays and consent. Plus, Esther McCarthy reviews new movies, The Royal Hotel, and Jesse Buckley's latest, Fingernails. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. The show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. I hope you're doing well and you had a pleasant Halloween. Can you wish people a happy Halloween if it's a pagan festival? Or Anyway, I mentioned to you last week I was going to be uh, dressing up as Hey Dougie, a dog from a cartoon, a children's cartoon character. And by golly, I did. And me and my three children and some neighbors' children and some neighbors' parents went around where we live. So there was about 12 of us knocking on doors and even within the confines of Halloween I think it made for a kind of scary sight me dressed as a giant dog with 11 other people I'm not sure I would have opened the door to us but we did have a lot of fun and uh, well done to everyone who took part in the Dublin Marathon a couple of people were in touch with me via email screentime at newstalk.com and telling me about how their race went so fair play to you if you ran it and fair play to Kieran Cudahy my colleague here in the station who forgot his runners but through various means uh, did run it with other runners and then his pair arrived so uh, hats off to you all and of course I've told you many times I'm a massive Bruce Springsteen fan and uh, hallelujah he's coming back for four dates Kilkenny, Cork, Belfast and Dublin all over the place he loves Ireland and we love him at least I do anyway now to movies and TV and this week in TV I was watching this. Do I have regrets? Hell yeah, I have regrets. But that also is what motivates me to overcome the regrets, to like fix it. And I do that through painting or I do that through writing because I can't fix it physically. It's gone. You know, that thing called time just gone. You know, I look at, like, if you're ever on a train and every window, Scenery is going by. It's like a photo. Wham, wham, wham. And you're never coming that way again. And that's what your life is. Boom. Snapping images, thing whipping by, and you can't, it's gone. The unmistakable sound of Sylvester Stallone. And that is a clip from Sly, the new Netflix documentary, which is only a one-off kind of movie. It's, it's only an hour and a half long. And this just dropped on... Um, Friday the 3rd of November so I had a screener of it so you, it's unlikely you've watched it all yet but maybe you have if you've listened on the radio and it's Sly Stallone giving a potted history of his life now I'm not going to lie to you folks it's slightly disappointing because there is a lot left out. We have him going through his life, but he really focuses on the bits he wants to focus on. And I guess that's his prerogative, but there's a lot that's left unsaid, particularly in his own life. He talks a lot about regret, and you can even get a sense of it from the clip there, but he doesn't quite spell out what those regrets are. Part of it is clearly that Maybe he wasn't taken as seriously as an actor as he felt he should have been at times. He definitely regrets some of the choices he made. Chief among them, stop or my mom will shoot. He does talk about that. But, you know, he was married to Bridget Nielsen. Uh, He's had some tragedy in his life. His son died. Sage, his mother Jackie Stallone was a, was a fascinating woman. He was an astrologer, a wrestling promoter. She's barely mentioned at all. So you know, it's his life. He he can talk about whatever he wants. But I think for a viewer and a casual viewer, he leaves a lot out. Now, when it comes to the movies, some very interesting things. You know, his love of the Rocky character, which I fully subscribe to, and I've told you before in this show, Rocky got lost in kind of franchise hell. But the original idea, particularly the first movie and the last last one, Rocky Balboa, are fantastic films. Uh, They really are. And he talks a lot about, as I mentioned, his 
choices and and you know when he did copland what an important role that was for him if you haven't seen that movie you should watch his performance in it so there are some fascinating things in this i just think you'll be left wanting a lot more because he's a fascinating guy and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of blank spaces and that is called sly and it is on netflix from this friday the 3rd of november Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show and we turn to the week's new movie releases and we are going to look at an intriguing movie. Well, they're both intriguing movies. The Royal Hotel, a thriller of sorts set in the Australian outback and a movie that's on Apple as well as getting a cinema release which should argue well, one would hope, is called Fingernails, all about kind of matching for love in a weird kind of way, starring the great Jesse Buckley. Delighted to be joined now by film reviewer Esther McCarthy. Esther, hello. Hi, John. How are you? I'm very well. I gather we're in for a good week. So let's strap ourselves in, (laughs) see how it goes. The Royal Hotel, uh, very much about the dingy and possibly scary outback. But this isn't a horror movie. No, although it feels like a horror movie at some at sometimes, and I think that's really down to the partnership between filmmaker Katie Green and Julia Garner, um, from best known from Ozark, of course, but can just not put a foot wrong in her career at the moment, as far as I'm concerned. They collaborated previously on a film a few years ago called it was a tiny little indie John, but it kind of made a bit of noise. It was called The Assistant, and it was kind of the first proper post Me Too. Um, drama and that I think played out like a horror film as well. It starred Garner as this young woman who went to take a work placement uh, with a group of Hollywood studio executives and kind of the carry on and nonsense and menacing sexualization of women and you know the the manipulation of women that went on in that workplace um, to quite horrific levels. So I think this filmmaker, Katie Green, is really good at taking the kind of toxic masculinity thing um, and turning it into a thriller, making it a genre film in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's really clever. She's working here again with Julia Garner. um, And this one is set in the Australian outback. Garner and her co-star, Jessica Henwick, who's really good here as well, um, play Hannah and Liv. There are these two Canadian friends who are backpacking across Australia but run out of cash. Um, so they're really keen to extend their holiday. So they decide to take a job uh, doing some bar work for a while. Um, they go to play, you know, they go to the local dole, dole office and are told, warned, I suppose the first little warning is that they're going to a place where they might need to expect a little bit more male attention than normal. Um but the, the two girls have been backpacking across Australia for months. So they're kind of pretty independent minded, very close friends. They think we're going to be able for that. That's fine. Um, the wonderful Hugo Weaving pops up as their boss. Uh, he runs the the, the bar, in, which is really in the middle of nowhere now. And the only... Well, so it's it's planes, trains and automobiles to get to it, I gather. Oh, totally. Like it's, yeah, yeah. Like they, they land in the middle of nowhere. You know, they don't even know where they're going. Um, and they are brought to this place anyway, where really the only regulars are the local miners who work um, in, in the mines. And they're good. They're good drinkers. They're good spenders. Um, and Hugo Weaving is quite fond of the drink himself, which is never a good sign of a well-run shop um, when the barman no. is kind of uh, <laughs> drinking the profits. So that's another little bell. And uh, he doesn't suffer fools either. He's really good in it. Uh, the mostly male clientele, as you'd expect. There are a few female minors, but it's mostly male clientele. They're very friendly. They're quite boisterous. Um, and they're very excited at the arrival of two new young women who mm-hmm. are marked on the blackboard, on the bar, on the night of their first shift as fresh meat. Uh, oh, so dear. That's the kind of language and territory you're dealing with here. I think, you know, they first meet two English bar women as well who are finishing their stint and are dancing up at the top of the bar and it's like really wild. Uh, Garner's character said all her instincts are screaming at her, um, but her friend thinks it's a bit of crack and maybe they need to cut loose a bit more. They've been, you know, fairly well behaved all through the holiday so far and persuades her to stay. But gradually, hint by hint, you know, bit by bit, 
you start to realize what a really toxic atmosphere is going on here and how it's not just sexualization of these women and the risk and the sense of entitlement that some of the men have towards them. It's also the idea that these are the only customers for this bar anywhere mm-hmm. to be seen. So they have that clout and that power more than an average, say, city centre bar, you know, where you can throw out people who behave badly. Like if you throw the, if you throw the bad behaviours out here, there's nobody else coming. So that's yeah. all hanging over them as well. What Kitty Green does so brilliantly is she brings thriller elements into it and what she really, really plays with here, she did it in The Assistant as well, is that sense, and women will understand it, or anyone who's felt threatened, to be honest, by an employer or in, in an unsafe place will understand it. Uh, that sense of your senses are screaming at you, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll be okay. Uh, mm. And maybe I am worrying for no, you know, honest, proper reason. Maybe yeah. I'm being too sensitive about my new workplace or whatever. Yeah. You mentioned the thriller aspect of it. So, because I was going to say up until you said thriller, like I could almost see, I felt when you were describing where, I know I haven't seen this, unfortunately, but where it's heading and this might be a tale of, you know, albeit very legitimate, but unrelenting doom. But I'm sensing you were entertained, for want of a better word, by this. It's quite funny in places. It's a very serious subject matter, but it's quite funny in places. Some of the carry-on, as you can imagine, is actually quite humorous. And I think they play that quite well. It never felt dour. Um, okay. And even when it builds, and when that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach builds, it's still really good filmmaking. It doesn't feel yeah. like message filmmaking for the sake of it. Um, yeah. It's a very important hot topic as well. I think it's it's all the eerier maybe because it's based on true events. Um, John, it's actually inspired by, I don't know if you saw a documentary back in 2016 called Hotel Cool Gardy. It caused a bit of a stir at the time. And it was and they a, were Finnish backpackers, weren't they? That's the, that's them. Yeah. 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 And it kind of laid bare, I think the sexism and menace of life in a, in a small mining town at the time caused a bit mm. of controversy. As you can imagine, people who live in, in those communities aren't all monsters, you know, and there was a bit of kickback towards that. But um, I just think this is very confident filmmaking. I think on the back of The Assistant, it really marks out Kitty Green, who is Australian herself, actually, as a major new voice in indie cinema. I I just hasn't put a foot wrong. And I think she's aided and abetted here by a note-perfect cast, even the supporting cast, um, but especially Julia Garner, who is kind of, She's the conscience of the film. She's the one stuff happens to. She's our she's our mind. Uh, yeah. Goes through it really. And she does that really well. And given the subject matter, and again, we don't have to give any kind of spoiler, as I always say, but is it a satisfying end to it, given what could or could not happen? Yeah. Or might or might not happen? It doesn't take cheap swipes. It doesn't, um, you know, doesn't do red herrings because I think it could be really easy to cheat an audience in a film like this. And the fact yeah. that it doesn't, um, is really what's exceptional about it for me. I'd say no word yeah. not though. I was still guessing where it was going 15 minutes towards the end. Oh, wow. Okay, well, that's that's good. And when it got there, you were content. Well, look, content isn't the right word, but you were satisfied and satiated, which we always want you to be, Esther, when you go to the cinema for us. So this sounds very promising. So stars-wise, what are you going to say? Oh, an easy four for this one. And honestly, uh-huh. can't wait to see what Kitty Green does next. You know, once she steps up now and gets a bigger budget and, you know, I just think she is a really, really interesting filmmaker. Yeah, that that's a that's a new that's a new dimension of stars. An easy four as opposed to just a four. So it's an easy four for the Royal Hotel, which we'll take a quick clip of. Okay, so it's good money, but what makes it a little tough is the remoteness of the location. So you guys are gonna be right here. It's a large mining area, so you're gonna have to be okay with a little male attention. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be fine. Um, <clears throat> is there anything a little less remote? <laughs> no, sorry, not at this late notice. Will there be kangaroos? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, we'll take it. 
That's a clip there from the Royal Hotel, which is in cinemas from this Friday, the 3rd of November. I'm talking to Esther McCarthy, who gave it four stars, and not just any old four stars, an easy four stars. Now, we have to be careful with our next movie, Esther, because I know you are one of the world's biggest Jesse Buckley fans. So tell us what's going on in Fingernails, which is in cinemas, but also on Apple TV from this Friday as well. I mean, you probably shouldn't have me on reviewing this, John, to be honest with you. I love her that much. <laughs> I've been a big fan since um, since Beast, really. I know most people fell in love with Jessie through Wild Rose, um, yeah. but I go right back to Beast, a little film that she made in... Um, little UK thriller that she made, which is really good if you haven't seen it. I know some people are still kind of finding it. And I just think she just brings a soulfulness to everything she does. And um, I just think she is one of our greatest stars at the moment. And she is again bringing it here um, in Fingernails. It's uh, an English language debut from a Greek filmmaker. We'll talk more about him afterwards. But he made a film called Apples a few years ago, which made it, caused a bit of a stir on the festival circuit and got this opportunity to make this film. Cast it. Could I be any more excited about a Jesse Buckley, new Jesse Buckley movie, John, except he went and co-cast Riz Ahmed alongside her. I was just going, please don't let me down with this one. And it doesn't. It's lovely. Now, it's really slowly paced it takes its sweet time in setting up its premise. And I do think it'll test the patience of some people, but it has a kind of a, a melancholy to it, which I really loved. So Okay. So so this reminded me of when I, again, I haven't seen it. I, I had a busy week, I'm afraid, with Halloween costumes. But this reminded me of The Lobster in some ways when I read about it and I watched the trailers. Now, it's funny you should say that because Christos Niku, who's the filmmaker I'm talking about here, collaborated with Yorgos Lanthimos, um, the great, great, great Greek filmmaker who's got poor things coming up soon, of course, but also gave us The Favourite and Lobster, which was filmed in County Kerry, as, as most of us will remember. Um, so I think, you know, I when he popped up with the apples a few years ago, I started jokingly calling him Baby Lanthimos because... <laughs> He does like he he worked as assistant director on a lot of Lanthimos's films, including Dogtooth. Um, so serious pedigree, but also has that kind of you know that liking for kind of absurd, surreal premises, mm-hmm. but that they're grounded in kind of reality as well. And that's what he's doing with this one. Like it's a kind of a an offbeat sci-fi romance. It's set in a world that feels. Vaguely in the past, but we're never really told. But in that sci-fi world where things could be in the future, but yet in the past as well, if that makes any sense. Right. Kind of challenging this idea that when it comes to love, I suppose, that chemistry can be a science. Um, We find out that, you know, the dating apps no longer work. People don't, you know, slide left or right anymore. And people have stopped falling in love. So this is kind of alarming the authorities and they set up this, this place called the Love Institute, um, where they try and persuade people to fall in love. Um, there's many subtleties at play. Uh, the public offices in this world stream the sound of rainfall because it sounds romantic, even though we hear one worker complaining that it makes her continu- continuously want to pee. Um, there's The local cinema is running a Hugh Grant uh, retrospective on the grounds that nobody understands love more than Hugh. And uh, <laughs> restaurants even run kind of these specially, uh, special deals for perfectly matched lovers. What are you talking about perfectly matched, says you? Well, there is a system a comp- in this love institute. There's a com- compatibility testing centre where couples can attend, have the fingernail pulled. See, very lanthimous. Um, yeah have a fingernail pulled and have that fingernail then tested to see if they work as a 100% match. Uh, This is controversial. Some couples find it absurd. Others find it reassuring, I suppose, um, that they are with the right person or they can have a certificate to say it. You know, not too unlike a marriage certificate, you could argue here. (laughs) But... um, and Anna, where does Jessie Buckley come in? Yeah, she she's a school teacher named Anna, and she has been tested and designated love match with her long term boyfriend, Ryan, uh, who's played by really well by Jeremy Allen White here. Uh, they ring they ring up a hundred percent, but there's just something, and this is where the casting of Jessie is perfect. I think there is just a yearning in her. There is a there's something missing in my life that she can come convey with her face 
without using yeah. any screenplay, you know, and you just get this nagging doubt that's coming across from her um, about the state of the relationship and whether it's all just turned a bit stale and sour or is that how it is supposed to be? And she has a cert to prove it. Um, okay. So and he, so you said this wasn't for everyone, but it is for you. So, so why is it for you? I kind of love a bit of melancholy in my movies and I think it's something that's not explored enough. Um, mm. There's a kind of, I don't mean a sadness, I mean really melancholy. There is um, a soul-searching element to this character, I suppose, that I really fell in with and I really got on board with. Um, and she, you know, she takes this job um, at, at the Love Institute without telling her partner. She He thinks she's taking a standard teaching job. So that's telling in itself. And she starts doing these... Um, quite ludicrous exercises, training exercises um, in the hope of spicing up her love life. Um, these exercises include listening to love songs in French um, and shock therapy is one that made me laugh out loud where you have you carry this device with you um, and every time the person you're in love with leaves the house, you give yourself an electric shock with it. So it's a form of shock therapy. So for all the melancholy, there's some really silly madcap humour in here as well. Yeah. And, yeah. and Riz Ahmed, sorry, is, yeah. is, is Ahmed, the new love interest? Because I don't think that's a spoiler. She kind of starts to is. fall for him. Yeah, I don't think it is, but we won't maybe reveal too much about that. But no. She starts, he's a tutor in this love institution. He's, you know, in a happy relationship and she kind of, she yeah, she starts working under him. They don't get on in, initially. So it's kind of like a rom-com playing out in a very weird world. Uh, but gradually, yeah, things start happening. And again, it's really subtle and it's really slow. I know if you like, you know, if Fast and Furious was your favourite movie this year, then <laughs> maybe don't go here. And I'm not being snobby when I mean that. Like if you do like action and a lot, a lot of pace in your films, this is very languid. Um, yeah. But I kind of really liked it for that. And I think the performances, the three leads are excellent, as you'd expect. Uh, but I think especially Buckley, I just, um, again, just taking on a role where I couldn't see anyone else playing it. Yeah. And you know what? Like I've said this before on the show and I, like like you, I've interviewed her once and just found her such a professional, so warm, so aware of how kind of lucky she feels to have this career. But she doesn't seem to make bad choices as an actress or an actor. Like she just, everything you see her in is, now I know there's probably one or two exceptions, but when I think back over the last few years, I just think she always shows up in everything she does and it tends to be pretty good what she's in. I think she reminds me, in a way, she's our female Paul Mescal, isn't she? Like, she could own the world right now. She's mm. making 10 million a movie. Um, and instead, off she is making little offbeat choices, mixing it up, never really doing the same thing twice, um, which I think Re Mescal's done a really good job with as well. I just think these people are, you know, they're curious actors, aren't they? And they're they're interested yeah, in telling I'm, human I'm, stories, I think. And it really I'm not does. entirely sure I go along with you that Mescal hasn't repeated himself ever, but we don't really have time to get into that now. I certainly don't think Jesse Buckley has, and that's just my humble opinion, of course. Absolutely. So this this sounds languid but lovely, uh, to use some alliteration there. So what would you say stars-wise for fingernails? I'm giving this four as well. <laughs> I'm giving them away like sweets this week, John. You really are. Well, that sounds good. That sounds like the people who listen to this show, I think, would like the sound of that from the correspondence I get. Fingernails, starring the great Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed is in cinemas and also on Apple TV from the 3rd of November. And just really quick, I didn't actually ask you, is Riz Ahmed very good in it as well? Because I know you were hoping it would be. Yeah, he's great in it. He's, I, I just, I'm a big fan there as well. I thought Sound of Metal was one of my favourite movies of the last five years. I thought it was extraordinary. Mm. And again, he's just choosing really well at the moment, isn't he? Just doing really interesting yeah. stuff. Well, that's another four. It wasn't an easy four this time, which is an important <laughs> difference, but a four nonetheless. Esther McCarthy, thank you very much. Up next, Alan Gilson on his new movie, The Days of Trees.
Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now in a certain sense, I can't believe I've never interviewed my next guest. Alan Gilsonen has made over 30 films and documentaries for cinema and TV that have been seen all over the world. Too many to name, but his credits go all the way back to the road to God knows where in the late 80s. And later on we'll go on to include things like Yellow Bittern, The Life and Times of Liam Clancy, the feature film Unless, The Ghost of Roger Casement, and of course The Meeting in 2018, which dramatised a restorative of justice meeting between a female victim and her attacker. Her attacker. Only this year we saw a fantastic feature documentary all about Noel Brown called The Seven Ages of Noel Brown which was screened on RT as well as The Ghost of Bagatonia a kind of film poem about, well, Bohemian Dublin. He is premiering premiering two films at this year's Cork International Film Festival. One is called The United Irishman, a documentary about the radical group, and the other, which I've seen, is called The Days of Trees, which sees him have a subject matter, Tomás Hardiman, and Tomás tells us the life story he's had, which has trauma and hope and all sorts of things, and through very skillful storytelling and elegant camera work, it's a fascinating movie. And I'm delighted to say Alan is in studio with me now. Alan, hello, sir. How are you? Great to be with you, John. It's a long introduction, but you've done a lot of things. <laughs> Can we go now? <laughs> I was saying to you beforehand, and, and take this as a compliment, but when I heard about this film and I watched the trailer, I thought, this is going to be grim because you have a man who I believe you know quite well recounting his life story and something pretty tragic in it happens and he's living out of that for a lot of his life. But yet I was beguiled, if that's not the wrong word, because I felt like Tomás was sitting, talking to me about this and, it's, and it was riveting to see where his life would go. So I guess that's a very long way of saying, did you sense that you could make something very watchable out of Tomás's life, if that's not a cruel way to put it? Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, this is the first time I've talked about the film, actually. It's, it's been finished a while, but it's, it's premiering in Cork. And uh, one of the things that I'm aware, I mean, it is about a man's life, very openly and honestly told by Tomás, but it's also, I suppose, about childhood sex abuse. Mm-hmm. And it's almost the epidemic of abuse that's happened in Ireland in recent years almost makes that phrase a bit redundant, mm-hmm. little... Yeah. Uh, Almost like too objective. Whereas this film is really very personal, very intimate. As you say, I know and have worked with Thomas for many years, going back to his days in the Abbey Theatre. So it's a very kind of intimate uh, account of his life where he he explores as if you were in the kitchen with him. Mm. Everything about his life in an incredibly honest and also nuanced way. Yeah. You know, uh, I was talking to the filmmaker Pat Collins recently, and he said he said it's almost not like a film. Yeah, you know, and I think I think there's some truth in that. And did not that you're some tabloid journalist trying to talk someone into something, but did it? Did it? Was he up for it from the get go when you suggested it, or did he suggest it? Or the, the film kind of emerged organically, as I say. I knew Thomas first directing theatre in the Abbey, where mm-hmm. he was the press officer, and then after that. We made a couple of documentaries together, yeah. including one on Ivor Brown. Yeah. Um, and out of that, I mean, Ivor's a very close friend of Thomas's, but out of that, through various, you know, psychoanalytic sessions he did with Ivor, yeah. this story starts to emerge. Mm. And out of that seed, the idea of making a film, um, the idea of telling a story, I think it came from Thomas, uh, and maybe with encouragement from Ivor, Emerge, but we didn't know how to do it. Yeah. You know, it's very complex ethically, it's very complex legally, very complex emotionally. And um, I mean, we kicked around all manner of doing mm-hmm. it. You know, it might have been a drama, it might have been animation. Mm-hmm. But finally, in the depths of COVID, we decided, well, we've sometimes we've been making, you got to do <laughs> yeah. it, you got to yeah. start. And, and basically, we went away on a kind of quasi retreat to Glenstall Abbey. Yeah which was a place of Thomas's choosing. And most of the film is filmed there. Very mm-hmm. small, myself, filming it, and, and a wonderful sound recorder, Bob Brennan. And that was it. So it became a kind of very intimate journey over a week or 10 days through his life. Yeah. You know? And very few of us spend a week or 10 days talking yeah. about our life to anyone. So it's a, it's a very intimate uh, unfolding of the story. Mm. Um, in, in, I hope, 
subtle and 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 complex ways. Yeah, and, and you say unfolding because it, it it was hypnotic in that I really wanted to see what happened to him, and and not to give spoilers, but the damage that he suffers and we all do to a certain extent, but his was profound, let's be honest about it, is slowly revealed in, in, a, in a very pleasing storytelling way, if that's not the wrong way of putting it. There are tense moments in it. Was your friendship on the line at any stage? I don't think so. I mean, I quite like that mm. uh, because, uh, I mean, Thomas is a remarkably open and courageous person, you know, and I have huge fondness for him. Uh, but we knew from the start we'd have to you know, go deep into this. Yeah. And and also I knew, partly because of our friendship, that I would have to be tough on him. Um, and at times the conversation was so intense, mm. you know, I was sort of felt I was nearly stepping into the position of his abuser. And, but what I liked is over the days he grew strength. Yeah. You know, uh, I remember he cried when we started the interview and I thought, oh God, we're never going to yeah. get to the end of yeah. this. And, but he seemed to, grow uncertainty mm-hmm. uh, as the story unfolded. Yeah. But I also felt I had to be uh, relatively tough on him mm-hmm. and ask hard questions. Yeah. And I kind of liked that he responded sometimes yeah. like he was annoyed at me. But I, I think, I hope, we have a, a sense of trust between us. That, yeah. That and you do get out of the way, though, as well. You're not doing a Louis Theroux on it. That's important to say. And that, I think, adds not that you need me to explain your film to you, but that adds to the sense that I felt he was talking to me. And I don't know. I mean, this is the first interview you've done about it, but he he felt like an extraordinary Irishman, an extraordinary ordinary Irish man in the sense that I felt this could be friends of mine there, there were shades of it now thankfully I, I suffered nothing like him but I was cognizant of my own life he's been in the arts as well so it just comes across as this could be a lot of Irish people is the story you're telling absolutely you're absolutely right I mean in, in many ways and we talked about it, he's, he's an archetypal mm. figure you yeah. know young man came from Tune grew up next door to the great playwright Tom Murphy mm-hmm. uh, you know and then followed a career in the arts and, and then beyond. So in a way, he's this archetypal Irishman. Mm. You know, he could be any of us. Uh, and then these extraordinary things started to happen. And he, I think, had the courage to face it. Not mm. face it, but also, I think what's really brave is Tomás, while he's hugely respectful of anybody else who has suffered horrendous abuse, he didn't want to go the legal route. He yeah. didn't want to go the blame yeah. route. He didn't want to go to the guard. Mm-hmm. Partly because... The legal system is very cruel yeah. for people uh, who, 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 uh, who are survivors of abuse. Uh, he wants to look at a different, more positive way of approaching it, which unfolds during the film, you know, that would give him a sense of liberty and I suppose present a different path out of, out of the trauma. There's a fascinating scene where you're in a car, what appears to be outside his abuser's house. Yeah. That must have been tough to film. Because you're asking him questions. I can hear you in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, as 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 the film unfolds, uh, we realise that Tomás knows where this man is. And, you know, at one point in the film, you know, I asked him, do you want to confront him? Mm. Uh, now, he didn't. But we, we went very close to his home. And, you know, I think he says a couple of remarkable things. Uh in it to my to my ears, you know. One is that it was like going back to the the place of an old love, you know. And at yeah. one point, which I think is is very honest, but but very surprising, he talks about kind of being in love with his. Yeah. Brother. So, like, I'm really, you know, to be honest, John, I had to watch it again this morning because so long since I've seen it, you know. And sometimes you forget your. Yeah, own yeah, film, yeah, yeah. Often because you want to, but uh, <laughs> I watched again this morning, and every time. I see it, I am gobsmacked by his openness yeah. and courage. Uh, and that's brave. And uh, and the film is tough yeah. places. You know, I'd, I'd have a certain caution for people who have suffered abuse. Sure, absolutely. This film may be liberating, but is also possibly very disturbing. Definitely. And it could it could be triggering. If you've just tuned in, I'm talking to Alan Gilson and about his movie The Days of Trees, which is premiering at this year's uh, Cork International Film Festival, which runs from November 9th to 26th. We'll get on to that in a moment, the Cork International Film Festival. 
not content with one movie premiering, premiering, I can't speak, it's the premiership is on my mind. You have another movie, The United Irishman, also there. Now, I haven't seen that, so we can be quick on it, but this is a documentary about The United Irishman. Yeah, Yeah, it's a bit excessive, I have to admit. I mean, I often see... (laughs) Hear people say, "Oh, you're the prolific Alan Gilson." Yes, as if I it's true though. Churn them out, yeah. You know, as I also try and remind people, these happen over a long period. Yes. It's also my job. Yes, you that's know? true. Yeah, don't yeah. say, "Oh, oh, John is very prolific with his old radio programs." You know, one a week. It's impressive, yeah, isn't it? It is. But no, the United Irishman is very, very different. Yes, it's a historical, epic feature documentary. Really telling the story of the United Irishman and 1798, yeah. which I think so many of us know about in some sort of mm-hmm. mythical way, but we don't really know it. Mm-hmm. And and also I think it's increasingly becoming uh, an important story because it's a shared history of rebellion between Catholic Protestants and dissenters. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it's a subject matter that's increasingly going to be on our minds as perhaps things change in the North, yeah. perhaps we talk about border poles. So yeah. it's a kind of very, very different, you know, in lots of ways, a classic epic history documentary. Well, listen, I want to ask you about the International Film Festival in Cork, which is taking place shortly, but just en route to that, there are so many movies and and documentaries you've made, we could be here all day, but just top of them, uh, because it's the most recent thing of yours I've seen, the documentary all about Noel Brown, which was on RTE this summer. Uh, Why, what, maybe it's an obvious question, but do you feel he never got the recognition he deserved because he was really a man out of time in the 50s. He was. He, he was remarkable in that sense. I mean, I think over the years he has, you know, been acknowledged. Uh, I was, to be honest, totally taken aback by the reaction, you know, to, right. to the film and how it sparked conversations in the country. Uh, I've rarely had something that's been shown on television with such a reaction. Yeah. And it is because in a way his time has come. What he was saying in the 50s is as relevant now. I think he was a remarkable man, brave man, a challenging man. Uh, and I think it's a really kind of extraordinary story that fell into my lap. Mm-hmm. Somebody came to me with an interview that had been done with him shortly before his death that had never been seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's somebody, it's interesting, when I made my first ever film when I was a kind of child, uh, you mentioned it, The Road to God Knows Where, I actually got a letter from him. Wow. Uh, a lovely letter saying... Uh, you know, how important it was. And, and so in a way, this felt like returning, returning yeah. the favour to him. And, okay. and it was a real, real pleasure. I think he's a remarkable man. Yeah. I think there was various discussions in the radio about, uh, you know, naming uh, the new children's hospital or a new maternity hospital mm-hmm. after him. And I, mm-hmm. think, I think that would be absolutely right. Yeah. He, he's an extraordinary figure. Some people say a difficult figure, but I think also because I talked to his two daughters, a very, you know, I think the the difficult man was overplayed Mm -hmm. because I also think he was a very gentle, thoughtful, loving man. Fascinating. Listen, let's get to Cork, uh, the the film festival, which again, I want to say, runs from the 9th of November to the 26th. The Cork International Film Festival, it seems to me, is is taking on a bigger life all the time. It's growing. We we know the Dublin International Film Festival, but I think Cork is having its moment. Any highlights for you? I mean, people can go to corkfilmfest.org and see all sorts of things like Yantim- uh, the guy who made the lobster, Yantimos, what's his name yeah, again? I, I wasn't going to mention him because I can't pronounce it. Well, there you go. The guy who made the lobster, his new movie is out. There's all sorts of things happening, your own. Are there any highlights that you'd like to yeah, pick out? I th- I th- so many. I mean, it's an extraordinary festival and I go back a long time to my first short there. But, but you know, I think there is an extraordinary program, you know, and, and but I mean, there were a few, Paul Dwan has a new documentary, which is always interesting, called All You Need Is Death. Right. And he's always fascinating and idiosyncratic. Uh, there's also a lovely family gala, which is a, a, a kind of charming French retake of the Alice in Wonderful, Wonderland uh, myth uh, called Sirocco and the something wins, perhaps, but I think that's really charming. And also Aki Kirismaki's new film, which was kind of toast of Cannes Film Festival and it's its first screen in Ireland. But, you know, the programme is extraordinary. I think you can nearly pick a page and go to that movie, you know, because it's really... And and as you say, it's becoming stronger and stronger every year. Yeah. Finally, I just want to ask you something. I mentioned this really extensive career of yours and you've been 
like the, the Noel Brown documentaries now and the RTE player as far as you know if people want to watch it but you've been in cinemas like when you first started uh, The Road to God Knows Where you wanted that in the cinema I ask a lot of people this how are you in 60 seconds if you can with the fact that so much is happening on screens at home as opposed to the cinema is that do you see that as a democratisation of the process or are you worried about it? No I think you know I think it's it, it's very positive because it's opening our our, our world of cinema so mm. much wider, uh, you know, and also, of course, the quality at home, you can really. But having said that, so I think it's like two parts of one art form. OK, because then when you go to the cinema, you remember, ah, this is the experience, you know, yeah. and, and that it, it is so different. But I but I think they're complementary, I think, uh, you know, and I'm sure people see a lot of films online that they'd never think of going mm. to in the cinema. So that's great. But also, I think we all know that to go and see something in the cinema is a different experience. Yeah, yeah. No question, no question. Well, I've been talking to the prolific Alan Gilson and his new movie, Days of Trees, will premiere at this year's Cork International Film Festival. Lovely to finally meet you, Alan. And you, John. Delight. I think it's very risky for an individual to tell the truth. This is the real serious thing when you look at it, like the amount of my time that has just gone up the chimney in smoke, something that could have been, I could have been giving it to my family, I could have been giving it to workmates, I could have been, you know, I have a consistent, worthwhile life. That's what's snatched. It's like just taking the, the air out of a balloon. A clip there from the Days of Trees, the new movie from Alan Gilson, which is going to get its premiere at the Cork Film Festival. And to find out more about that festival, corkfilmfest.org is all you need to know. Up next, How to Have Sex. That's the name of a movie, incidentally. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. I'm John Farley. Now opening in Irish cinemas this Friday, the 3rd of November, is the unusually named How to Have Sex. In the movie, we see close friends Tara, M, and Skye arrive off a plane in Crete and head to the town of Malia, gearing up for a wild summer holiday post-GCSEs. Tara, played by Mia McKenney Bruce, hasn't yet had her first sexual experience, which M, and especially Skye, delight and taunting her about as the trio furiously swap clothes and compliments in preparation for each wild night out. They arrive to block out thoughts of the impending exam results and what lies ahead for each of them. Friendships blossom when they meet their hotel neighbours Badger, Paddy and Paige. But as the group pair off the best holiday ever plays out very differently for Tara. This is a gripping first feature, a debut from the writer-director Molly Manning-Walker that kind of explores subjects of consent and earned, and I would say rightly, an award at Cannes, the uncertain, I'm not going to bother with the French pronunciation because I'll only wreck it. It's called Uncertain Regard is the award. Uncertain Regard? Close enough, I'm sorry. But it won that award at Cannes and rightly so, I would suggest because this is a an unusual movie uh, and it, you can feel the the wild sense of a summer nightclub off it and then it gets into issues of consent and I would suggest very real ways. So it was directed, as I say, by Molly Manning-Walker and I spoke to her earlier in the week. So Molly, I assume in your life you have been to some of these far-flung Greek islands or Spanish islands for these post-GCSE summer holidays where things get wild and Irish kids have done those as well and followed British people in their droves. Was that the starting point for you looking back and going, wow, that was a strange time and a strange thing to be doing at 16? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess uh, to caveat with it was also some of the best memories of my life, but um, but equally, you know, I think there was a lot of pretense in, in, in it and we were pretending to be pe- like different people at that time to impress each other. Mm. Um, so it was kind of a looking at how we, yeah, we presented how much we were having a good time and how we were feeling inside. You know, you mentioned some of the best time of your life uh, and it was a wonderful time for a lot of people because you're going off. And yet we have this narrative creeping in about consent and just how we don't know ourselves at that age and, and anything because 
could happen. So I guess there's a fine line when you're making a movie like this because you want to celebrate youth and freedom, but you're also making a very serious point about consent. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was like something that we had to balance the whole way through the process was like, how much fun can you have? And I guess now the film is designed in kind of two halves like there's the first half that is like best holiday ever and it feels like a Disneyland and you're kind of like um you know in this in this magical experience of running away from home almost and then the second half where it sort of um delves into the like darker and deeper topics yeah and you know the issue of consent and what happens around that, it's very realistic in that when issues of consent tend to happen, especially now, because there's a lot of things, rightly so, being made about that, there can often be a very a violent act. Uh, whereas what happens in this movie is a lot more... The, the idea of consent is is quite grey in it, in that, you know, at four in the morning when people have been drinking for hours, people can wake up the next day and go, well, I actually didn't do anything wrong. Was that the kind of you know, mine you were trying to look at? Yeah, I guess I was trying to look at, I think consent's become very binary. It's become yes or no. And actually, yeah. you know, she's very uncomfortable in the, in the, in the, in the moment. And, and uh, he should recognize that and they should be recognizing those experiences together. Um, and it shouldn't just be about yes or no. It should be about how someone's feeling. Is it true that you, kind of hung out in in a Greek island in pre-production and soaked up this wildness again to remind yourself of it all for like a week or two? Yeah, yeah I lived in, in Crete for two weeks in prep. Um, right. And then we prepped the entire film there as well. So we did, we did a director scout quite early, which was in the height of the season. And then, yeah, moved there for three months. And, and what was it like revisiting all that stuff again? Yeah, it was really strange. I mean, it's like... Um, almost having like an out of body experience, like looking down on how I was as a teenager. And it's kind of crazy just to see how it hasn't changed. You know, it's really, it's really similar to, to how it was when we were there. The drunken feel of it really comes off the screen. Like I felt like I was in a, a crowded nightclub again in my own misspent youth and just drinking far too much. It looked like you went in to active clubs, but this was all extras. Like you, you got all that together yourselves. That must've been a headache. Yeah, it was a headache. Um, yeah, they're all a loud headache. Yeah, well, you we couldn't, you know, you can't. Um, we couldn't put music on, so we would have to put okay. music on, dancing, and then kill the music in order to get the performance and record sound. So, yeah, it was a bit of a nightmare. Um, but yeah, well worth it. And I think going into live clubs would have been even more of a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's true. And like, I just have to ask, there's a penis-shaped pool in it. How on earth did you find that? Does that really exist? I presume you didn't build a swimming pool. Two of them exist in Malia, firstly. Wow. Uh, we picked the hotel. That is the hotel that we shot in. Okay. We picked the hotel before we realised that the, the pool was shaped in a, in a penis shape. And... We were on a tech recce standing on the roof of the of the hotel and we were like, is the pool a penis shape? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's quite funny. And uh, halfway through the shoot, the line producer was like, we're doing quite well on money. Is there is there anything that you want? I was like, I want a drone shot of the pool. <laughs> so it came later in the process, basically. Wow, and it's unusual that someone comes to you and says we're ahead financially while we're still in production. That's that's a rarity, I imagine. I mentioned some other movies. I, I seem, particularly this year, to be interviewing lots of people about movies that have consent at their heart. Only a couple of weeks ago, there's a new movie on Netflix called Fair Play. I interviewed the director, Chloe DeMont, last week, a movie called Cat Person. Are we just finally catching up to this kind of stuff that we need to talk about consent? Because it just seems movies are not flooded, but there are a lot of them at the moment, and rightly so, I guess. But what, I'm wondering, why do you think that might be? I guess it's like a post Me Too movement of like, okay, so we've all talked about how many people have been affected by this topic, but how are we changing things and and how does that look? You know, how do those experiences look on screen? And I think with a huge push of female filmmakers coming through and 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 a push to to diversify the film industry, this is a key experience that women experience, and so and so maybe it's becoming very present on screen. 
Yeah. I was reading an interview with you in The Guardian, the paper of record, and, and your mother was a director as well. And and that can go either of two ways. You know, I, I, I interviewed Ridley Scott's son and he's now a director as well, but it's rare because usually it's like, let's get away from what my parent did or whatever. Was that like in terms of your creative life, what, what kind of influence was that? Did you at some stage in your young life say, I never want anything to do with sitting behind a camera? No, I think, it, you know, it was never, it was a very organic way that it happened for me. Like I was like, I started running quite early on in my life and then decided I thought I wanted to make documentaries. And so I guess it's always been around me and, and my parents both have this sort of like DIY, DIY energy where they like get up and make stuff themselves on 5Ds and stuff still. So I think um, that was kind of like embedded in how I looked at the film world. Yeah. And then finally, this one, uh, and forgive my French, Uncertain Regard uh, is the award at the Cannes Film Festival. And in the same Guardian article, like this can't be made up, but it sounds wonderful. John C. Riley, because you were running late in order to kill time for you to accept the award, started singing on your behalf. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was wow. I was in Rome and they called to say you'd want we'd won the award we didn't know what we'd won just something and I and I had like four hours to get back to Cannes so yeah, it, was a, it was a bit of a chase and so what song did he sing he sang oh, I can't remember the name of it I wasn't there <laughs> no I guess I guess <laughs> tell me this finally I said finally but I, I really mean finally now you know, I have a daughter. I sometimes think, I couldn't help thinking, you know, she's eight now, so she's a while off from going on these holidays. But I presume that's going to come in 10 years' time or whatever. Are, are, like, is your target audience for this? Maybe you don't think about audiences, but are you showing this to teenagers? Is that your hope as well as parents? Or or do you think about that as a yeah, filmmaker? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the aim was always to talk to teenagers and to, to, to sort of bring in the sex ed kind of element going to schools and like really open up the conversation I guess um what's been really fascinating about the process is showing it to older people have have, have recognized their own experience within it and even like an older man recognized himself as Paddy and I think okay. that shows the scale of what we're trying to of what we're trying to do or what we're trying to say well listen it's it's a fantastic film and, uh, and I hope it does very well for you and thanks for talking to me Molly thank you so much Molly Manning Walker there talking to me about her new film, her directorial debut, How to Have Sex, which is in cinemas from this Friday, the 3rd of November. That is it for this week. Thanks to Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage, John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy the remainder of your weekend and have a safe week ahead.